Hello, this is David Sangster, lead pastor at New Life Church. Thank you for joining us today for our podcast. It's our goal to help you grow in your faith and discover all that God has for you. I hope you're encouraged, challenged, and inspired. Enjoy the message. All right, New Life. It's so good to be back here with you um, preaching our family. So Pastor Dave, good friend of mine, I preached here about six months ago. And he actually invited me to preach again. So that's a good sign. But we um, really good friends and our families attended here uh, several times over the last few months. Um, a little bit of just ministry context for us. My wife and I are both ordained ministers. We serve the Southern New England Ministry Network. And uh, we planted a church in Hartford about five years ago. And then um, toward the, the fall this last year, we transitioned out of the pastoral leadership of that church. And my wife now serving full time at our network office. That's actually um, part of her role today takes her to another church. So we're both serving uh, area churches this morning and our family is here. And this church has just been such a blessing to us. And then Dave, you are my friend. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And um, you guys have an awesome pastor. He has been a blessing to me um, so many times. And I know that you know this, but I want you to hear it affirmed again in front of you that um, he is a really incredible person, not just as a pastor, um, but as a friend to me. And so I love you, and I really appreciate the way that you pour into me. Uh, Some of the things even just that we've walked through as a family, Dave's one that I can count on to text me, call me, even spontaneously. Hey, how are you doing? I'm thinking about you, and it means so much. So thank you. I love you, and I really appreciate you. We have an opportunity today uh, to look to God's Word. God's Word is alive, and it speaks words of truth to us. Um, I've even seen over the last few months here as a church what God has spoken through um, looking at the commandments of Scripture um, and seeing the power of God's Word and how it's not just something for um, long ago. Even though these are ancient words, it's actually something that speaks to us that's alive today. And so I've been praying for this morning and our time that we have together. And um, we're going to look at the, the book of Nehemiah. There's a story there about a man named Nehemiah. Yeah, that's, that's why it's called Nehemiah. And um, what's really cool about the book of Nehemiah, it's actually written in first person. So it's kind of like his personal account of um, something that happened for the people of God and really incredible story. And so we'll look at that in just a moment. But I've given this sermon uh, the title Catalyst for Change. How many of you know what a catalyst is? Like that word catalyst. Yeah, a catalyst, like especially if you've done work in, in chemistry um, and, and other things related to like mixing elements, that type of stuff, maybe professionally or you just remember back to high school days. Um, a catalyst is something that sets off a reaction. Now that can be, um, obviously chemically it can happen that way. Like you think about like on your car, you have a catalytic converter, right? And we have lots of catalytic converter thefts that are happening right now. But what a catalyst does is when elements come in contact with a catalyst, it sets off a reaction. Now, what's amazing is that we as people can also be a catalyst. By our interactions with one another, we can set off a change. We can make changes happen in the world. We see this um, sometimes in the news. We hear stories of like somebody standing up in protest or, or, or giving a speech or people going out and, and advocating on behalf of others. And we see that it sets off a chain reaction of events. And then if we look back, we see certain catalytic moments where change happens. And that's the story of Nehemiah. And so we're going we're gonna to jump into that in just a moment. But um, I want to set kind of quickly as we get started, I want to set some of the, the historical context of what's happening in this story of Nehemiah and why it's so important 
important, and then how it, it connects with us today. But uh, before we do that, can we pause for just a moment? And I just want to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us one more time as we look to God's Word. God, we thank you for moments like this each week where we can, we can come together as your people we can come together in spaces that have been set apart and, and sanctified and consecrated to be able to worship you, to engage with one another and be and catalyst for change with one another as we impact each other. And then also as we hear your word preached, we realize it's not just something to, to listen to and to ponder, but your word is something that's meant to go down deep inside of us and transform our very heart and soul. And so we pray today, God, as we engage with your scripture, that you would change us as we desire to be a change in this world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to go through this really quick because I've been accused in the past of being kind of professor-like, and I can get really into the historical context, and I love like um, looking at the history of the Bible and how all the pieces interlap or, or overlap and, and interplay. And then um, about two months ago, my wife and I got to go on a trip to Israel. We spent almost two weeks, about 12, 14 days, um, traveling and back and um, in the land, in the Holy Land. It was incredible. Um, took 2,000 pictures while I was there. No joke. It took 2,000 pictures, and um, I actually brought some pictures to show you. Um, but you're, no, no, not all 2,000. I have four pictures, okay? I'm not going to like, this isn't going to turn into a, a slideshow, okay? Uh, I'll show you some pictures in just a moment. But I, what I want to explain, what's happening in the book of Nehemiah and what we see in this moment as we um, open the text, and we're not going to, there's only, there's 13 chapters. We're not going to go through all 13. We're just going to look at um, chapter one and a little bit of chapter two. But um, I would encourage you to read the whole story of Nehemiah. It is so powerful what God does through one person being willing and committed to, to God working through them. But what has happened is, the people of God, the Israelites, they had been in what we know as, as Israel, the land, and um, constantly, you know, battles back and forth. And then um, King Nebuchadnezzar comes in and the, the Babylonians, they, they wipe out God's people. They take people into captivity. They tear down the walls of the city. They destroy the city. And as they take people back into Babylon, the people then are in exile. And this happens multiple times in different ways over the history of the, the Jewish people. But what we see in this moment for Nehemiah is it's been about 150 years that um, this moment where the people have been overrun and brought into to exile are then um, slowly starting to return back to the land that they were taken from. Now, if you think about 150 years, that's some generations that have passed. And so even for Nehemiah, we see that he's in the land that is now like modern day Iran, but um, it's about a thousand miles away from what was his homeland. And yet there's this longing for him even to return back to what he knows is home. And so part of the, the practice that would happen and this is some of the pictures I want to show you. Can you put up the first one, the picture of Israel? So look, a bunch of rocks on the ground, right? <laughs> I'll explain a little bit. So what would happen is when outside forces, invading forces would come in, and this is the same true um, in um, Israel, in Jordan, in Syria, um, when outside forces would come in and would conquer a city, what they would do to basically um, humiliate the people is they would level everything, all the rocks, everything would be just destroyed. And then to add insult to injury, they would bring in dirt 
and they would start building literally on the top of what was the footprint of a previous city. So not only have you been conquered, but we're going to try to erase your existence. And so now in archaeology, when they go back and they know the location of certain cities, they'll go and they'll start excavating, and they have sites. They're called a tell, T-E-L, and it's multi-layered where they can actually go back and see civilization, 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 and they can see the conquering and the different empires that will come in and build on top of one another. So what you're looking at here is um, the city of um, Megiddo. That you, you know it's in the Old Testament, but also mentioned in the book of Revelation. But there are layers here. Can I step back here? I won't touch the screen. But there are layers here where you see like the, the, the kind of the rocks, but then there's upper layers and then layers where cities have come in where Megiddo is, because it was such a fortress, there's up to 26 to 27 layers. The places that has been pulled one way, pulled the other. And so it makes these artificial hills in the countryside. So there's the land is naturally hilly and mountainous, but then there are these artificial hills where it's places of war, conquer, heartbreak, people being destroyed and wiped out and other civilizations coming in. Go to the next picture. So this one is um, it's called the City of David, and this is actually where they um, know that King David, you know, of like the psalmist King David, this is where his palace would have been. So um, you can see again, though, there's rocks and then rocks, because if you look from the time of David going forward, outside forces coming in and covering over and conquering. And so we got to stand there like this is a picture I took with my phone. So you can see the more modern where they've excavated. But then these rocks are literally the overlook, like David's portico to like look over the city. So cool. And it's there. And so it's part of the challenge in archaeology is how many layers down do you excavate? Do we go back to the time of Christ? Do we go back to before that? Do we go back all the way to the time of David and even further? And so they'll peel back the layers, almost like if you took a multi-layered cake and you cut a little slice and you cut a little slice. So you see all the different layers that are in it. And they want people to be able to see that. Go to the next one. So this is the, the Western Wall, sometimes called the Wailing Wall. So this is the Southern Wall here. This is the Western Wall. If you see the pictures online of people going and praying, it's right over in here. But I wanted to show this picture because it gives a sense of the scale of the, the city walls. And what's neat is as you look here, I know, I'm, I'm going to move quickly. I'm sorry. I know. It's like professor mode. But you see the different types of rocks that are here. Those are literally the different like empires and civilizations that built and rebuilt and built and rebuilt Jerusalem. One more, just to show you like kind of the scale of, this is the scale of the wall going up and see all the rocks down here that they've excavated. And then those are rocks that previously, these big stones were the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And then those were torn down and other rocks have been put in place. And we're not talking about like, again, if you're an American in the room, like our you know, national history ideas, like a few hundred years, you're talking about thousands and thousands of years in one place. So it's so impressive. So when we jump into this story with Nehemiah, what we see is that the people that had been living in Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem had been conquered. Their city just wiped out. The rocks, literally the stone walls that would protect the city, the outside kings come in and they say, we're removing one after another after another. We don't want to leave anything standing. And so Nehemiah, one other thing about Nehemiah that's important to understand is he was a cupbearer in the, the house of the king in the palace. The king, yes, King Artaxerxes in Persia, um, what is now modern day Iran. And he was serving in the palace, but he was um, a, uh, 
a, is an Israelite. He was not, you know, a Babylonian. And yet he was serving in the house of king. But that doesn't mean that he held, like, status or um, had a place of, like, honor in that. Because if you're a cupbearer, you know what a cupbearer does. They're basically a security system for the king. If you try to poison the king, the cupbearer tastes the, the wine or the food and they die first, and so hopefully it doesn't kill the king. So he's really, he just is in a functional role that is meant to basically be a, a security feature for the king. He was disposable, but yet he had to have been doing a pretty good job in what he was in because he served in the king. I served the king, he served in the palace, and so he has this place where he's seeing things and hearing things about what's going on, and yet he's still somebody who would have been looked upon as being less than, not having status, as being an outsider, as being just merely functional, replaceable. And so when we jump into this story in Nehemiah 1, what we see is this connection with Nehemiah's heart for his people. Let's jump into it. Nehemiah chapter 1, um, verse number 2. Hanani, one of my brothers, possibly an actual brother, but at least ethnically a brother, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. They asked them, I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, Things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, Nehemiah, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. He hears this story and he so moved that he comes to the place of mourning, fasting, and praying for days. Remember, Nehemiah is one that, um, again, has lived probably his entire life away from his homeland, and yet he hears this story, and there's something that just resonates on that kind of deeper level, deeper frequency with him, and it moves him. It moves him to a place of compassion. It moves him to a place of heartache, a place of overwhelm, and so we're going to look at this catalyst for change. I have three statements as we look at the remaining verses here that I think are important for us in realizing that we all encounter moments where, in, where we are invited to become a catalyst for change where God desires to do something in us and desires to do something through us, just like we're going to see with Nehemiah. So number one, when we look at Nehemiah, this, this moment that he's encountering, we have to first realize that we must allow reality in and receive the burden. See, he says there in, in verse number four, he says, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. It's this moment of saying, like, my people, my, my fellow Israelites, my brothers and my sisters have been left defenseless. They've returned back to our homeland, and there's nothing left for them. A city without walls is vulnerable. I mean, practically, a city without walls is vulnerable, but yet there's what it symbolizes as well to the people. This, this sense of being able to return back to this place of longing, a place of, of feeling connected and rooted, and yet as they're there... There's nothing left for them to be able to take up, to be able to step into a sense of like system and structure. There's no businesses. They're, the markets are gone. Like the walls have been torn down. What was defining of their existence was tried to be smudged out. And so as they step back into this place of, of trying to return back to something from long before that had been their ancestors, they step into a place of going like, it's gone. 
It's not there. And then to think about like what, what had to have been happening inside of Nehemiah, where it's like he's literally serving the king that's holding people in exile. He's living in the king's palace with access to a certain level of comfort. And so there's very well, like he could have heard this and just let it pass on by, right? He could have, man, wow, that's rough. Sorry for you guys. Comfortable over here, you know? But instead, again, there's something that God is doing through him when he, he hears the story and then he moves to a place of compassion, of prayer, of being moved by God. And then what I love, and, and we have to stop and we have to see this with, with Nehemiah, he had lived his whole life in a culture that was not his own. And yet, when he hears what's happening, he stops and he prays. And when he prays, he prays to the God of the heavens. And in just a moment, we're going to look at his prayer. And his prayer that he prays, he starts off and he calls on the name of Yahweh, the most holy name of God. And then he says, God of the heavens, Elohim HaShemayim, this idea of the one who created everything. Going back all the way to Genesis, we see a God who created the heavens, Shemayim, this idea of like all that we can see. The name of God that is the God of the heavens has been used generationally all throughout the scriptures. And so when we see Nehemiah pray it, we can, we can just like read right past it, right? But if you stop and you think for a moment, here's a guy who had been raised culturally in something so far from the culture of his people, and yet there's someone in his life that taught him the scriptures, that taught him the importance of Yahweh. He's living so close to the king and the king who would have been upholding the Babylonian gods, a pantheon of gods. And yet when Nehemiah hears this story, he's moved to compassion to turn to the God of his people, the one true God, and he calls on his name. So it's like when we see this, we have to realize that, you know, when we, when we look at the state of the world around us, Sometimes we can feel like that person of exile. Even if you're a person who was born here, grew up here, and you live 10 minutes from where you went to high school, there can still be for us as followers of Jesus this sense of being in exile, of looking at the state of the world around us and going, God, how has this drifted so far from what you desire? When I, try to, when I try to live my life in a way that, that honors you, or I try to teach my kids what it means to, to understand who you are, God, and yet we send them into school or they have friends that they encounter, and, and it just becomes this constant place of tension, this friction of like culture against culture. There can be this longing in us for this place that feels like home. Nehemiah had never been to home, Jerusalem, and yet he hears these stories and there's this longing in his heart and he turns to God and he begins to cry out on behalf of God's people. I think for us, if we're going to become this catalyst for change, we have to be moved in the same way. As we look at the state of the world around us, as we look at maybe our, our workplace environment or the, the conditions of our own family or maybe things that are incurring in our neighborhoods or, or within our, our, even our local like city and town governments or, or things happening on a state or national level, we have to be moved to a place of compassion. Like Nehemiah, we have to come to this place where we, we experience it, like we receive the burden from God and we, and we turn to God in prayer. We become people who, who are not hardened by it, right? We have so much privilege. We have so much ability to distract ourselves. 
We can read the news on our phone or on our TV or iPad or wherever you encounter the news, and we can look at it, and we can kind of just let it wash over us and go, wow, man, things are really bad. <sighs> Time for a cup of coffee. I got to move on. I got stuff to do. Or we can allow it to penetrate our hearts. And we can say, God, I don't know what to do here, but I know that we need you. God, I don't know what to do about this circumstance that, that continues to happen that I, that I encounter. Maybe it is, maybe it is a, a workplace conflict, right? Maybe it is an environment where, you know, we're, we're in this um, place at school where it's like, I, I just, I'm trying to be a light. I'm trying to shine a light. I'm trying to be the one that's like honoring you and all that I do, God. Jesus, I just want to be like you. And yet we keep entering in this place where it feels like it's light against darkness, and we can come to a place where we get so overwhelmed by it that we just kind of numb out. But if we look at the, the example here with Nehemiah, we realize he lets the reality sink in. He sees it for what it is. And then he's in this place where he, he receives the burden of it. But then secondly, it's like we receive the burden, we allow it to sink in, but then we bring it back to God. He didn't let himself just get completely washed over by the misery of it all, but he actually turns it toward God. We see that verse number four. Again, he says, when I heard this, I sat down, I wept. In fact, for days, I mourned, I fasted, I prayed to the God of heaven. But then verse number five, here is his prayer, the first part of his prayer. Then I said, O Lord, Yahweh, God of heaven, Elohim Hashemayim, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and unfailing love, with those who love him and obey his commands. Listen to my prayer. The amount of authority of how he's praying to God, like the intensity of that, is not just something that Nehemiah would have come up with on his own. He had still had people in his life, maybe a mom and a dad, maybe a praying grandmother, who was teaching him the importance of who God is, the power of who God is, God Yahweh, God of their people, that he had found this ability to, to navigate within the, the cultural system that he was in to, to maintain this integrity that's not just a cultural identity of being a Jewish person or, or you know, knowing the scriptures of, of Yahweh, but he was in this place where that had become so much of who he was that as he hears this story and he's moved to compassion, his first thought is to turn to God. We think about this idea of being a catalyst for change sometimes for us, we think, you know, that means jumping to action, right? Like it's, it's time, like I, I hear something and I have to do something. I, I, hear, I hear about a, a crisis. I hear about a, a, a thing happening in the world, either far from here or close to here. And I've got to come up with a plan. Somebody must do something. But I love it that the example in Nehemiah's story is he actually, he slows it down. And his first thought was to turn to God he mourns, he fasts, he prays to the God of heaven. But let's keep going. He says, listen to my prayer. And then continuing verse number six, look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. He, he comes to this place where he's acknowledging the transgressions of his own people. He's confessing to God. It's this place of, of, of being, you know, so moved that he's like crying out to God. And yet, this is what I love about his example, is that he's not immediately saying, okay, God, now give me an assignment. 
Give me something to do. Show me what I'm supposed to do. He begins to confess and he's praying to God. And actually, if we look at the scriptures, this is what's really cool about Nehemiah is there's an outline. Like he actually lays out the certain months of the year when things are happening. It's almost like it's like his journal. And you can go back and read his journal. From the time that he hears this report to the time that he gets an opportunity that we're going to see in just a second, an audience before the king, it's about four to six months. Four to six months of this gap. And you know what he was doing in that gap of time? I like to call it active waiting. It's active waiting. That's, some, that's one. If you take notes, write that down. Active waiting is this. It looks like to everybody around you that maybe nothing's really happening. There may not be a lot of external action that's happening, but active waiting, when it comes to the person of faith, actually has a whole lot of action that's happening under the surface. It's like that old analogy of like when you see a duck on the water, right? It looks so smooth and pristine on the water, but underneath those little legs are paddling. I feel like that's what Nehemiah was doing. Four to six months of praying, fasting, praying and asking God, God, do something, move here. You've got to move. You have to do something. And he's crying out to God over and over again. That's what active waiting is. And so it's convicting for me because I feel like so many times, even in my own life, I come to these places where I see there's a need. Maybe it's something personally. Maybe it's, again, just something in ministry or family. And my, my amount of space in that active waiting time is about this long. I hear it. I'm overwhelmed. And then it's like, Brad's got to do something. It's time for Brad to come up with a plan. It's time for Brad to like put things into action. I got to call somebody. I got to text somebody. I got to come up with a plan. I've got to to do something. And yet, when we look at the example of Nehemiah, this place of active waiting, it's long. It's slow. How many of you know it's probably excruciating, (laughs) right? And again, I feel like in our human understanding of things, in a person who maybe is not living with a faith and trust in God, it's like, what are you talking about? What do you mean you sit back and you pray and you fast and you're waiting for God to speak? You're waiting for God to give an answer. You don't wait. Don't wait. Take action. Move. Come on. We're a people that, you know, our nation, you know, we've had so many times of like, you know, rise up and, and, and we've had, you know, throw off tyranny and like find freedom and expression. And like, this is what we do. We jump to action. And yet when we see the example not just in Nehemiah, but all throughout scripture, the most powerful moments when God moves, it's been soaked in prayer. It's people who have believed maybe for generations that God was going to do something. I mean, you look at like when Jesus comes as the Messiah, you're talking about generation after generation after generation of people praying for a Messiah to come, one that would redeem God's people, one that would restore relationship to God. And it had been prayed for and prayed for and believed for to a point that they had started kind of giving up hope and making up their own stories and ideas of what the Messiah would be. How often in your life do you come to a place of trusting God with active waiting? where there may actually be no action you're able to take other than to pray. To pray. So we see in this example with Nehemiah that, you know, he, he, he's turning to God in prayer, but then this is what I think is so amazing. He begins to confess sin. And in confessing sin, it's this place of asking for forgiveness, but it's not just, again, we have to understand this. It's not just like him personal, but he's actually apologizing and, and asking in this repentant way on behalf of 
all of God's people. And it's really important for what comes next. Look at it. He says, and this is Nehemiah chapter one still, verse number six and seven. He says, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commandments, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant, Moses. If you were here just a couple months ago, that was part of what you as a church were, were learning was the decrees and the commandments that God gave Moses and the importance of those. And so here we have Nehemiah who's actually saying, God, I repent. I acknowledge that, yes, me and my family and our people, we've turned against you. But then I think this is the catalytic moment. The, the, the verse I'm about to read you, this is the moment of catalyst, the moment of change. It's not in 52 days or, or, or in the future when they rebuild the whole city in 52 days. That's a really cool part. We're not even going to get there. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough time to get into all of it. So you're going to have to read it later. But he actually does end up in Jerusalem and they do rebuild the city walls and they do it in 52 days. Think about how big those stones are, right? And they're able to rebuild the walls and rebuild the identity for Jerusalem. But that wasn't the moment when he stood in front of the people and he's like, come on, a call to arms. Let's do this. Let's rebuild the city. That wasn't when the catalytic moment happened. The moment that there was a catalyst for change that happened is in the prayers of Nehemiah. In the prayers of Nehemiah, when he confesses the sins of the people, he repents and he's crying out to God and he's confessing, we need you, God. But then the next verse, look at what he says in verse number nine. He reminds God of God's promises to his people. Verse number nine, he says to God, God, you said, but if you turn to me, if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. He confesses the promises of God and he declares the promises of God. I think this is what's so amazing is that, yes, we have to, we have to see the pain. We have to feel the reality of the state of our world or our circumstances or what's happening. We have to allow it in and we have to bring that burden back to God. But in that, we're reminded of the promises of God, the faithfulness of God. This is what builds our faith. This is what active waiting does, is when we turn back to God and say, God, this is what you said. God, this is what your word tells me. When I stand on the foundation of your word, this is what I'm standing upon. When I look at your scripture and I see both from the Old to the New Testament who you are and the faithfulness of who you are, what I see embodied in the person of Christ Jesus, what I hear about Paul and the other apostles and in the books of Acts, the miracles and the things that were happening, all of that points back to a God who is faithful. And so that catalytic moment for change for Nehemiah it happened in prayer. And I believe it was that moment as he looks at God and he says, God, I'm declaring that this is what you've said. This is what you've promised. And now, God, it's time to make good on your promise. Wow. How many of you talk to God that way? Anybody? We can. We can. God invites us to. He shows us heroes of faith who look at God and, and, and beg and ask and plead for God to move. But then at that moment when the, when the doors open and God will do it, he swings the door wide open. And this is what I want to show you. This is where we're going to land it. We have to, number three, we have to be ready to seize God opportunities. Seize God opportunities. You can write that one down. Because that's what happens. Nehemiah for months is praying and he's asking for God to move, asking for God to do something. Well, guess what else he's doing in the meantime? He's still showing up at work. 
Do you remember what he does for work? He's a cupbearer for the king. So when he goes to work, <laughs> every day he goes to work, he's standing in the presence of power. An earthly ruler, yes, but he's in the presence of power. But he's stepping up and he's serving one who has the ability to do something. But he doesn't create his own opportunity. He doesn't try to like stack the deck. He doesn't try. But there's this moment that comes in chapter two where there's something different about his demeanor, his countenance, and the king happens to notice. Like, you look a little sad. You look down. Like, what's going on? Uh-oh. King kind of just throws the door wide open. Hey, what's happening? Like, something's different about you. After months and months. And so we see this God opportunity that gets set up. And, and here's what happens. This is Nehemiah's own account of it in chapter two. We're going to move through these, and then we're going to bring it to um, kind of a connection point for us. But in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse number 1, it says this, Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. It's normal every day at work, right? Average day. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. Verse number 2. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. <laughs> the king doesn't even know, right? Because Nehemiah has been in that place of active waiting, right? It's all been brewing and building under the surface. And it's like, it's like the, the, the potential, you know, potential energy and kinetic energy. Another science thing. I don't know what it is today. But the potential energy has like been building and building and building, right? It's like the roller coaster, click, 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 click up to the top. And this is the moment. God throws the door open and the king asks, you must be deeply troubled. And then Nehemiah says, I was terrified. But I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, what we have to, we have to realize here is that this moment where Nehemiah is, is sharing this, he's sharing this to King Artaxerxes. If you read in um, Ezra, the king has already shut down a rebellion in this area of Jerusalem. This is kind of in, there's some time in between. But there was a person who tried to rise up and something tried to happen in Jerusalem. The king gets a letter, somebody complaining, kind of like reporting back. This is, all, this is Ezra, Ezra chapter 4. And so the king in his letter actually says, shut it down and shut it down now with force and with power. What do you think that looks like? <laughs> Destruction, right? Shut it down with force and with power. And so as Nehemiah says, I was terrified. Maybe he even knows what had happened, the whole thing in the letter and whatever is in um, Ezra. And so as he looks at this and he says, the city gates have been destroyed with fire. Look at what the king says in response, though. The king asks, well, how, how can I help you? How can I help you? God opportunity. With a prayer to the God of heaven, Elohim Hashemayim, the one who holds all of creation in his hand, Nehemiah replies, if it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. Verse number six, the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, how long will you be gone and when will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. Months of preparation, months of setup, of just believing that God would do something. And we can read it and it just seems like, wow, 
Okay, the king agreed to his request. But if you look at the layers and layers of complexity for Nehemiah to come to that moment and, and to express something to the king. I mean, think about in ancient culture, like you didn't just go to the king unless the king summoned you. You didn't make a request to the king unless the king is allowing you to make a request. So for the king to open the door, it's kind of like scripture says elsewhere that God is the one who holds the hearts of kings. It's like, even though King Artaxerxes, I mean, you're talking about Babylonians, you're talking about like, like so far from honoring Yahweh, and yet he opens the door. And then Nehemiah asks, and the king with the queen sitting next to him says, how long will you be gone? Okay, sounds good. You can go. And then, like, if enough is not enough, I love it, Nehemiah's boldness. And I think this is what, when things have been soaked in prayer, this is what it does in us. Verse number seven, he says, I also said to the king, if it please this king, please let me have letters addressed to the governors of the providence of the, of the west of the Euphrates, instructing them to let me travel through their territories on my way to Judah. So now I want an official letter from you that I have permission. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me the timber I will need to make the beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. So he's like, not only do I want permission to go, I want you to write me a letter so that if anybody messes with me, I hold up the letter and say, nope, I'm good, I'm approved. And beyond that, king, I want you to pay for it. Just give me what I need. And the king opens the door wide. And the, the scripture says, and the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God, of Yahweh, was on me, Nehemiah. Here's what's important for us, and I want us to step into, step into the power of this moment, is that Nehemiah was ready because he had prepared himself through that act of waiting. And yet Nehemiah, he's an average Joe. He's an average guy. Nehemiah is you. Nehemiah is me. Nobody of importance, nobody with like that any of this should have actually been happening. Nehemiah was set up by God because he had been trusting again and again, looking at God and saying, God, I need you to move. I need you to work. He had been fasting. He had been praying. He had been in mourning. He had been confessing that we, your people, have got it wrong and we just need you. And then God sets him up and says, here's what can happen. I love it. I love it. It's so amazing. And what, what's so cool about this is we see it with Nehemiah and things could have gone so wrong. And if you read later in Nehemiah, you realize he experiences a lot of resistance. He experiences a lot of challenges. People literally like spreading rumors, like trying to put him to death. He, he eventually, not only do they rebuild the city, but he gets set up as a governor of one of the areas. Like it's just like his whole life just pivots and switches but he had no guarantee of any of that. He could have spoken those words out loud to the king and the king could have been so offended that it's off with your head. You're done. You're out. Put this man to death. How dare he speak to me this way? So we have to understand the power of this moment. And so you have kind of the, the little guy versus empire. And, and, and we can see Nehemiah, it seems as though he's like stepped into this place all on his own, but he has the power and the authority that comes from knowing the God that he's representing as he stands there and he speaks these words out loud. It's so powerful, so incredible. And so when we think about it for ourselves, I think about it for you and for me. And I realize there are moments in our lives where God moves deeply in our heart. It may be big things that we see on the news earthquakes in other parts of the world, like heartache, famine, 
that way. It may be things here in our own country, whether it's stuff happening on a political level or happening socioeconomically, things of disparity between people, um, whether it's in, in, in prejudice or racism or, or things that are um, withholding from people who need care and, and services, whether it's things that maybe even as a church action that, that we desire to take as a church to be able to serve our community. Like there are so many opportunities for us to step into places of caring and action, but I feel like all of it has to be backed up from that place of soaking it in prayer and fasting bringing that heartache that we feel for the world before God and saying, God, I want to do something, but first you have to do something in me. We can't take action without actually being with the one who gives us our identity, the one who gives us the ability to stand with authority. It's so easy for us to step back and go, okay, I don't know. Somebody's got to do something like this. This this place is, there's so much going on. There's so much need and we can be, feel kind of overwhelmed by all of it. But if we're people of prayer and we keep bringing it back to God, he's going to set us up with moments where there's God-given opportunities and we will be ready to step into it. There's a scripture in, in Peter, in the New Testament, 2 Peter, verse 1. Verse number, I'm sorry, chapter number 1, verse number 3. It says, by God's divine power, God has given us everything we need for a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, Christ Jesus, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. Like we have everything we need to live a godly life. In so many ways, we can, we can feel a lot like Nehemiah people that are kind of estranged from our own place of belonging, our own place of just being at comfort and at ease in our own culture and expression of, of our faith and, and Christianity. And we can be in places where we feel like it's just everything is like we're fighting against the current of what's happening around us. And so I love the example that he sets before us that says that I am going to turn to the God of the heavens. He's serving every day in the palace of an earthly king who I'm sure by appearances looked like he had everything. And yet when Nehemiah prays, he prays to the God who holds all of creation in his hands. The same God that we pray to. And so when we read scripture like 2 Peter, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him. What does that tell us? The source of it all flows from the God who holds it all. Amen? I want to do this as we move into a place of response. I invite you, if you're comfortable, to, to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. I want to pray for you. I think sometimes when we hear a sermon like this, there's, there's kind of different ways that it can hit us depending on where, where we are presently. Maybe you're one like Nehemiah, where there have been some situations that you've been praying for. I love it. Pastor Dave, that even during worship, that moment of having people share the testimony of God's faithfulness. Wow. Powerful to see what God's doing. And, it, and, it's, and, and for us, like we can hear those moments of, of testimony of people sharing, oh, God moved in this way or God did this thing. And it highlights a moment. It's like a snapshot. But if we could zoom out, we see that there's so much that comes before it. And then there's so much that comes after it. And so for those moments where we experience that God miracle, if we were able to kind of scroll back in the timeline, we see that there are countless hours of prayer. There's a depth of emotion 
and a longing within us that's crying out to God and saying, God, do something. God, move. God, heal. God, restore. God, set free. God, I know that you can do it. When I read your scriptures, I see the promises of who you are. I know that it's in your character. I know that it's in your nature. And so maybe today as you hear the story of Nehemiah, you identify with that part of his story of just that, that place of that active waiting of longing. And I want to encourage you today and let the Holy Spirit just build your faith today. Keep it up. Don't grow weary. Don't get overwhelmed. Don't stop. Keep praying because there's a God moment, a God opportunity where God's going to move. And maybe to people around you, it'd be like, wow, how did that happen? But you know, you know how it happened. You can't even and, and quantify everything that's poured in and kind of landslides into that moment. And so I want you to keep praying. But I think there may be some of us, as we hear this story this morning, maybe you're a person that feels kind of like you're on the other side of Nehemiah's story. That you've somehow landed your pla- yourself in a desolate place. You feel like some of that, some of the walls that need to be that protection around you have been destroyed. You feel like you've kind of been left exposed and vulnerable. You're one that maybe you're crying out like the people of Jerusalem and Judea were crying out. And you're saying, God, would you send somebody? God, would you help? God, would you move? Would you work? I I need your help. Maybe that for you is actually coming to a moment of faith in Jesus Christ where today you come to a place of actual surrender to Jesus and saying, I want you to have total control of my life. Maybe for the very first time, or maybe it's time to renew that commitment again and saying, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. So I want to pray for the, the two of you and then I turn it back over to Pastor Dave. God, as we think about these two groups of us this morning, we may find ourselves in, in both sides of that of declaring your faithfulness, of praying um, with faith and praying for God-given opportunities. And so for the people that are in that, in that group today, I just want to uphold their arms today. I pray, God, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would just wrap yourself around them, that you would fill them with a new life and a new energy for what you have called them into. God, I pray, Lord, for those that, that have to enter into maybe very dark places because of work or relationship, the context that they're in, I pray, God, that you would let your fire burn so bright inside of them that they would shine so brightly to those around them. God, that they would be a beacon of hope and life in this dark world. I pray, God, for some people that have been on a verge of experiencing something really incredible as they put their faith into action, and yet they feel overwhelmed, and they're just waiting for the moment when you open the door. I pray, God, that you would make the discernment process so clear to them of how you have shaped them and formed them and what you are calling them into and the assignment that you're giving them. I pray, God, that it would build our faith today as we see this example of Nehemiah, that it would bring us to a place of truly knowing a trust and a faith that goes deep, that's, that's down into the bedrock of our very soul, that's built on your word and the faithfulness of your character. I pray, God, that you would give the ability to pray with boldness before you, declaring your promises over our situations and our circumstances. God, I also want to pray for that, that second group of people that maybe feel like they're just in a deserted, desolate place. And when they look around them, all they see is destruction. They see all the stone walls just toppled over. They feel like they've been left exposed and vulnerable and alone. And I pray, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would come in, wash over them. God, remind them that they belong to you. 
God, I pray through Jesus Christ that you would help them to identify and understand their place of belonging as a child of God. Christ Jesus, I pray for those that desire to follow you and to serve you with their whole life in that place of surrender, that today would be a marked moment for them of salvation, of stepping into a faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would renew all of our commitment to serving you wholeheartedly. We know that there are so many distractions in this world around us, so many things that want to tear at our time and our attention to take up and want to occupy space inside of us. And I pray, God, that you would help us to, like Nehemiah, confess our sins, confess the, the sins that have distracted us and have, have turned us away from you, and that, God, you would return us in a place of repentance to trusting in you wholeheartedly and singly again. God, I thank you for what you were doing in your people, and we pray, God, that you would commit all of this in, in the Holy Spirit to a growing faith in you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. To find out more about New Life Church or to plan a visit, go to our website at discovernewlife.org.